Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. This episode of the EdUp Experience is sponsored by MDT Marketing. MDT Marketing is a digital marketing agency with a vision of creating education, marketing, and technology programs that improve people's lives. Specializing in student nurturing programs, digital advertising, marketing technology, and digital printing, MDT Marketing's seasoned team is entrusted by higher education institutional leaders to develop personalized communication strategies that are compliant and highlight what differentiates their institutions. Learn more about MDT Marketing at mdtmarketing.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education and beyond. I'm already tripping over my words, Liz. Um, This is Dr. Joe Salustio. Liz, how are you? I'm going to feed you your lines. I'm going to be like off, off you know, like in the movies, where, in the movies where they have somebody that has like the cue card and then they just feed, I'm going to feed you your lines today so that you can. Well, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the, my stress this morning, Elizabeth, and, and I've been thinking about how to properly introduce you because now I have to go Elizabeth Liba, focus of a New York times, uh, a feature and the third highest LinkedIn top voice for 2020 in the world of higher education. It's just that your, your accomplishments are getting too long for a proper introduction. So you're going to need to tone it down just a tad. And your conscience and your calendar and your reminder of everything that you need to do for the day. Your number one cheerleader. You have to throw all that stuff in there too. Uh, I'll I'll see what I can do. Um, (laughs) It's getting hard. Let me just tell you. Anyway, congratulations on that uh, huge accomplishment and honor to be one of LinkedIn's top voices for 2020, um, which, um, which, you know, talks a a lot about what we've done here at Up and what you're doing all over the, the platform on LinkedIn. And, and, and helps us get some awesome, awesome guests. Good segue Um, there. Good segue. Here's another top voice that we need to speak to, right? Well, yeah. Speaking of top voices, you (laughs) like that? There you go. There you go. On the line, ladies and gentlemen, we have Dr. Chris McCarran. He is the deputy assistant secretary for higher education at the department of education. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing well, guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, sir, it is an honor, and uh, uh, we, we've got a lot of questions for you, and, and uh, most importantly, how are you? How is your health? How is your family uh, during this time that we're, we're living in today? Well, I appreciate you asking. We are all well. My wife uh, is a fellow higher education sojourner. She's an executive search consultant uh, for one of the top companies in the country and, and works remotely anyway, so it's not been much change for her. Uh, and I've got a little five-year-old going on 30 um, that, that uh, is at the house. We're homeschooling. So uh, we, we've managed to maintain our health and, and working hard to try to accomplish everything that needs to be done uh, here at the department and uh, elsewhere. So it's, it's been, we've been blessed these last few months. Well, I'll join you there, Chris. I've got a, six, a, six, uh, a six-year-old uh, girl and a three-year-old boy. 
um, they, the, their age combined ages add up to 45. Uh, that's right. That's right. You know? That's so right. It's a, you know, no matter the position that you have, the level that you have these days, who you work for, when you're working from home, boy, doesn't reality hit you in the face? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All of us, uh, it, it is crazy. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do a lot of video presentations right now for these conferences, and there's no telling what'll be in my background any given day. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Liz, too. She's a, it's clothes falling on her face right now in her laundry clothes room. Clothes falling <laughs> on my face. I, that's like my studio right now. And then my five-year-old is guaranteed. Actually, no, today's his birthday. He's going to be, he turns six today. Oh, happy birthday. So, yeah, he's guaranteed to run in here. Thank you. He's guaranteed well, to run in here any minute. So that, that's a part of it. <laughs> well, Chris, well, well, we want to we talk to you. And, and, you know, I think before we just start laying a bunch of questions on you, you know, um, the Department of Education, we all, you know, if you work in higher education, at some level, you're working with the Department of Education through notifications, through uh, information, whatever. In your role as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Higher Ed, give us a once over. What does that entail? What's your oversight look like? How, how do you conduct the business of that role and, and what does it look like? Absolutely. So, yeah, the, the Department of Education, like a lot of federal agencies, has a lot of moving pieces. Um, I'm part of what they call the Office of Post-Secondary Education um, that oversees all of, of post-secondary education. That is overseen by uh, an undersecretary that oversees higher education policy that, of course, then reports to uh, the secretary and deputy secretary. So there's a lot of layers. Uh, federal student aid is, is in the mix there as well. But specific to my role, uh, and it, my role has shifted a little bit over the last few months, um, most of what I do is uh, related to the financial distribution of grant programs um, in, into the field of higher education. We put about anywhere two and a half, three billion dollars of money into the field every year uh, into a variety of programs that are designed uh, to, to increase access and success for students. Uh, but over the last few months, uh, my team was tapped to distribute the CARES Act money um, that came through Congress back in March, it was about $14 billion um, intended for higher education institutions as emergency grant aid to students and institutions. So my team and I have been working literally around the clock these last few months trying to get that money into the field and, and get it to where uh, you know, is needed most. And so we've, we've been really blessed to be able to see just the creativity and persistence of so many different institutions across this country and how they're, they're stepping up um, to, to serve students during this time. Um, so it's, it's a fun role. Um, you know, I've, I've previously served as a, as a provost and executive vice president as a dean. And so it was, it was really interesting for me to be able to take on this role and, and kind of complete my 360 degree, degree view of higher education. Um, because the department uh, adds a layer to it that, that is both needed and, and I think certainly helps um, in terms of resources for a lot of these institutions that are serving um, you know, folks who, who need help with access and who need help with success, uh, as well as setting policy to make sure that, that our institutions are, are ready to tackle whatever may come in the future. So it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Um, you do, when you, when you get, to the department, at least for me, I, you know, you miss students, you miss interacting with faculty. Um, that was always the highlight of my day in an institutional environment, but uh, the opportunity to, to work to, to help so many folks across the country uh, 
it, you know, you lay your head down at night knowing that, that you, you've helped in some small way. Well, that's interesting that, you know, that you uh, say that because, you know, when you're, you're in higher ed and you're meeting with students and you have a, a really a direct effect on the, the outcomes, on the success of those students, and then you get approached or, or you know, I don't know how the process uh, works completely, but you, you step into a role at the Department of Ed, which is, I'm, I'm assuming, heavy policy work. One way or the other, you're looking more at policy and Absolutely. narrative than you're looking at students, right? Never seeing a student. How, how do you, you know, because you're serving, right? You stepped into a role to really serve the right. greater good. Um, I'm, and this is an assumption, you don't have to confirm or deny this, but I'm guessing that the federal government doesn't pay as much as the private sector uh, for, for a certain job. So, no, that laugh, that laugh tells us what we need to know, right? Well, it, he's no confirming or denying. Uh, why, why do you do that? Why do you step into a role uh, working for the higher department of education, serving others, buried in policy. I, I could just imagine you in a room stacked with boxes of policy. I, I don't know if that's how <laughs> Where it literally do you get works. that from? Where, where, where did you get that? Where did that image come from? <laughs> I don't know. Just like stacks of inbox papers. It's a, you know, I'm sure it's not like that. But file cabinets everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Open file cabinets with the pages of flying out. Oh um, uh, yeah. Yeah. T tell me why you made that move and, and, you know, why you decided to serve. Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, when I was first asked uh, to come to the department, it was a, it was a surprise to me. Um, and I had served at the institutional level as a, as an EBB and provost, as a Dean, as an assistant to the president. So I felt like, you know, I knew the, the institutional level really well. And, um, you know, the opportunity to come and help shape policy that would affect the future of higher education for years to come at this time in our history. And, and when I agreed to come, I, of course, didn't know that the pandemic would be upon us uh, and that, you know, I would get to serve in, in one of those roles to help institutions through that. Um, that that has been kind of a hindsight blessing. Um, but the, the opportunity to engage the conversation on the national level and to get to work with some of the most brilliant people that you've ever met in, in the industry on these policies that work to ensure that, that students have a, a future in higher education that's, that's not encumbered by more than they need to have in terms of debt that gives them opportunity to be responsible borrowers that, um, that gives them opportunity to study things, to study subjects that um, will give them uh, career opportunities in the future. All those things, all those conversations that I was having at the classroom level, because I taught in our, in our higher education programming at the classroom level, the mm -hmm. chance to be a part of those conversations uh, and to influence those conversations on a national level. I mean, I think service is the right word, right? Um, because it, it did feel like I was pulling away um, from my calling a little bit. I've always felt like my calling was at the institutional level, um, but it has been an absolute blessing. The, the people that work here um, are, are just incredible servants and they're, they're a bunch of super smart people um, who really, 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 really care about the students. And that includes our secretary, just incredibly passionate about both the K-12 and higher ed students that we serve. Um, and so it just felt like a different type of service to students, but 
Um, but I, but I do miss being at the institutional level. I will say one thing that, that has, I found ironic and I knew this a little bit from my time working on the Hill, but institutional higher education, at least in my experience, institutional higher education is 10 times more political than anything you're going to find in DC <laughs> or the Hill. Um, and so you, you, you know, you, that has actually been an interesting irony for me is I've, I've probably dealt with less politics in DC than I, than I did when I was surfing in a, in a campus environment because of the wow. democratic nature of how we, how we run our institutions in the United States. And mm. so that's been, that's been quite the irony, but I'm a firm believer in, in this is, this is the way I design a lot of the programs that we administer. I'm a firm believer that you need to have both pr the practical experience and the, the academic experience. So my academic study, my doctorate is in higher education, leadership and policy. And so I wanted to be able to practice all the things that, that I had studied and continue to study um, because I do think our, our industry, and, and y'all talk a lot about this on your show, our industry is at a crossroads in a way that it's not been in some time. It's been an interesting almost double dip because we had the recession in 08 uh, and then we had the pandemic hit and both of those occurrences have forced institutions into innovations that might not have otherwise occurred um, and, you know, we've been kind of riding this, this wave of traditional higher education since, you know, as, as early as the 60s. And now we're faced with this prospect of we have to innovate. Uh, the future is unclear. The enrollment predictions for the next decade are grim. You know, all these things that we talk about at an institutional level, um, it, it's, it's just an incredible time, an incredible opportunity as, as uncertain, as scary as it can be when you're trying to figure these things out on an institutional campus, it's an incredible time to be involved in higher education because there's so much opportunity to shape the future of, of how we do higher education and how we think about higher education in this country. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't trade that for the world. That's, you know, uh, I'm going to ask one more question, then I'll pass it to LinkedIn's top voice, uh, Liz Leiba. But I, um, the reason I, I, I use the word service, um, Chris, is because I'm, I'm, and this is a, I make a lot of assumptions, and you get to tell me if I'm right or wrong, but I'm guessing it's a thankless job to some degree. You know, when, when in traditional or even any sector of education, when people talk about the Department of Education, it's not, you know, at least with the conversations I've been in, it's not like everybody's doing cartwheels down the hallway as they're talking about the Department of Education. There's usually some policy being discussed or, oh, the department this or the department that. So you're kind of in a thankless role where you're overseeing distribution of grant funding, CARES Act funding. And, uh, and by and large, government has a uh, reputation for being slow as mm -hmm. slow as, as the reputation and speed of higher education. In fact, the, the two entities are probably really similar in terms of reputation for those that work outside of, of those two areas, that, that slow and you know, higher, ed, uh, higher ed file rooms of, of mm -hmm. you know, same, same thing. How fast did the department have to move because of the disruption of COVID and, and the number of higher ed institutions moving along, what, what did the department have to do to keep up with this change? That was, uh, that's a great question. And it, 
It started, I'm trying to remember my dates. The law was passed in Congress on March 27th, and we were beginning to launch the first transfer money in early April. And the secretary made clear from, from day one that her priority was to get money out as quickly as possible, first to students and then to institutions, because we knew there were a lot of folks out there uh, in need. And you're right, uh, you know, the, the wills of federal government do not traditionally move very quickly. Uh, and there's some, there's some good reasons for that and some not so good reasons for that. But in this case, um, we knew that we were gonna have to move much more quickly than, than we typically did. And it's, it's actually something we're pretty proud of um, because we, we got the vast majority of the money allocated to us out within the first two months. Now, th this is why I talk about, too, the folks that I work with just being so incredible, because you're, you're talking about a lot of these folks that have been civil servants for, for decades, and they, they were pulling all-nighters and working on the weekends, and um, we've, we've tried to be one of the things that I've personally tried to do in this role is make sure that I'm available uh, to answer any questions that anybody has. So anytime I speak, whether on a webinar or uh, in front of a group of folks, I give out my, my direct cell phone line so that folks can reach me. And so we've really tried to create a culture of, you know, we want to be available to answer these questions. This is, this is a new territory for a lot of these universities uh, and we want to be available. Um, but, you know, I, I think, I think like, like a lot of jobs in higher ed, right? I mean, even in the, in the presidents and provost roles, a lot of times those can, those can feel like, like thankless jobs. But at the end of the day, when you know you're um, helping to serve the nation's students, and in this case, at a time of unprecedented and uncertainty, um, you know, that's something you can, you can lay your head down at night and say, I, I've, I've done good work. And, um, and had direct, I mean, the thing about these, the way that Congress designed these cash grants, these are direct cash grants to students. These are direct money in their pocket. And so uh, I've been really proud of our team. Um, it's, uh, you know, I often talk to people and I think folks think we have a, a whole army of people here at the Department of Education since it's a federal agency. But in reality, it's a fairly small team for the, the amount of work that they do. And uh, I mean, it, just incredibly, incredibly talented, gifted, and dedicated folks. Interested in some fresh marketing ideas that have been real world tested by colleges and universities and actually work? We'd love to share. Come download MDT Marketing's free 2020 Marketing Strategies Guide, filled with stats and highlights on digital marketing initiatives exclusively for colleges and universities. Download the strategies guide for free at learn.mdtmarketing.com. MDT Marketing has been a leader in delivering marketing solutions for institutes of higher education since 1995. Come leverage our knowledge and download our strategies guide at learn.mdtmarketing.com. As a faculty member myself, I, I totally felt everything that you were saying about that connection that you have in the classroom and being able to make a difference at the level where you have that connection with the students, but then also feeling that calling to want to make that broader ability to, to make that national change. And, and I think that's so amazing that you've been able to realize that. Talking about some of the things that you were mentioning 
as you've navigated your uh, your your duties that have evolved since this uh, unforeseen uh, issue with COVID. Can you talk to us a little bit about that CARES Act? So I, I have I want to ask about the students. I want to talk about faculty. I have questions sure. about just some of the all the other things that you talked about, but I I just want to talk about that really quick about that CARES Act money because being at the campus level myself and seeing like you said, you know, campuses kind of jumps on that, put their applications in, we try to get the money out to the students to make sure they were able to take care of students' needs. What were some of the creative things that you were seeing um, just from your observations and, and maybe just uh, anecdotally from campuses that were able to help students? I know Joe and I have spoken with a lot of campus presidents and we were really interested to see some of the different innovations or creative ways that uh, campuses were able to mobilize that money to make sure that they were able to help students to stay in class, to make sure that students didn't uh, experience food insecurity or have issues with um, housing insecurity. What were some of the things that you saw that campuses were able to do with that CARES Act money uh, that you've seen or heard to help students, to support students, and to be res responsive to students' needs over the past few months? Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. It's been one of the, the great rewards over the last few months to, to see um, the creativity and, and kind of ingenuity that a lot of these campuses have had mm. in, in using and distributing their CARES Act money. And it, it really points to, I think, on a broad level, you know, one of the, the great strengths of American higher education, if not the greatest strength, is it's designed mm. for diversity, right? It's mm. 6,000 plus institutions that are all designed around their own specific missions to serve mm -hmm. their own specific markets. And it really, I, I'm a, a strong believer after studying the history of higher ed around the world, that that its core strength is that it's it, no one institution is designed to try to be all things to all people, that, mm -hmm. that there's specific uh, folks, specific uh, groups, specific industries that each of these institutions serve. And um, you know, you see that reflected in, in some of how the money is spent, at least on the institutional side. So on the student side, um, you know, there, there were some pretty specific restrictions set by Congress on how that money could be spent. And it really was intended to be direct cash grants to students. Um, and so the flexibility that the institution had around that money was how they wanted to, to distribute it, what mechanisms they wanted to use, and what eligibility uh, they wanted to set. Now, there were some, some broad eligibility parameters set by Congress uh, in the law. And, and so um, what amazed us were the stories, at least on the student side, were the stories of how quickly uh, mm -hmm. institutions got these funds out. Just like we've been working all-nighters and weekends up here, uh, I know institutions have been, have been doing the same thing. A lot of these institutions um, you know, this is the first time they've interacted with a federal grant outside of Title IV, and right. so it's a brand new game to them, and they're, they're learning as they go. Um, and so, you know, I mean, uh, for a lot of these students, it became a lifeline, and, and so we were really proud of, of, of how quickly we got the money out, and I've been proud to see how quickly universities got the money into the hands of students. On the institutional side, you, you begin to see, uh, I think in a very positive way, how diverse the landscape of American higher education is because you hear all these sto stories of, of how the money's being spent or institutions will ask us, is this, 
you know, within the regulations to spend the money this way. And it just, it shows the kinds of things that institutions are having to consider uh, to continue to serve their, their student population. So, you know, I'll talk to an institution that, um, you know, on the simple end that wants to buy um, laptops for their students with the institutional money to make sure that everybody can um, connect uh, online to the more um, kind of the more specific, the more nuanced talking to a cosmetology institution that needs to invest in this specific type of wig uh, that can be used from home because the students are no longer allowed uh, to, to be there in person to cut hair and, and everything in between, right? So, um, you know, we institutions, we got lucky, I think, in, in some respects, because when 2008 recession happened, it forced a lot of institutions to um, begin to think at least about innovation, to begin to think about going online in some respect. And of course, then the year of the MOOC hit, and, and we've continued to have those conversations. And then the pandemic hit in 2020, and for the vast majority of institutions, they at least had been having those conversations about how do we do this in a virtual environment. And I think it made for a much easier transition than had we not had the bump in the road in 08. If we had a lot of these institutions that had not been thinking about how to interact in a virtual environment, how to, how to teach in a virtual environment, you know, I think this could have been a di very different outcome for American higher education. But for the most part, I, I've been really, really impressed um, with, with creativity and ingenuity uh, of our of our nation's campuses and how they're responding to to the learning needs of their students um, and and spending a ton of time doing it. I mean, both of you have have worked in higher ed. You know, it's not a nine to five job ever, mm -hmm. but it is, it is definitely not a nine to five job right now. Um, and I mean, you just your hats go off to people because it it's just incredible um, what we've been able to accomplish in a very very short period of time. And it, I mean, it harkens back to the fact that higher ed, uh, at least as we know it in, in Western civilization, has been around since the 1400s. We've been around a long time. We've endured a lot of things. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we overcome um, barriers like this, that, that we react in this kind of way. But, but it is, it gives you a lot of confidence in moving forward for all the, the negative postulations and, and opinings that folks have about the future of higher ed um, and they're important conversations to have but the but the reality is it's been around a long time um, and and will continue to be around because it it is so unique in its existence uh, in the world marketplace and continues to be the envy of so many in the world uh, and to play whatever part in that whether it's at the campus level or the federal level um, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, like I said, it's a blessing to be able to get up every morning and just absolutely love the work that you do. I love your perspective because you're a historian. I don't think we've had any higher ed leader that has a background in higher education 
in that way. Like a lot of people that work in higher ed, even if they get to the, the provost level, the presidential level, they might have a background in business or they might have a background sure. in whatever their topic of study has been. But the fact that you've studied higher education, you're so well-versed in the history of higher education and just how that whole evolution has taken place. I find that so fascinating. You, you alluded a little bit to some of the opining and people saying, oh, higher education, you know, where is it going? You know, what, what, what are we doing? Talk to me just a little bit before I pass it back to Joe, because I have to get this question in. The, a lot of the question about ROI of higher education, a lot of the questions about student debt, the, the pivot to online. How do you, what are you thinking in terms of just what we need to do as a sector to increase access and, and make sure that students, you, you kind of talked about this in the very beginning of your calling to go to the national level, because I think that's one of the reasons why myself and Joe do what we do, because we do this tirelessly. I think sometimes we feel like this is our full-time job and not our actual real full-time jobs, because we think about- I have slept in a week, just for the record. I, I literally have not slept. <laughs> I think I said three hours last night, <laughs> like seriously. So talk to us about that. Like we think about these issues almost nonstop. Like, ROI for the students and student debt and all the all the, the naysayers. Joe Joe gets so like he gets totally offended when people say that higher education <laughs> higher education is is like not as it, it, it doesn't serve the student and it's it's going to be something that's going to be obsolete. And and a part of what drives us is to try to help people to understand just the value of higher education. What is your philosophy about all these moving pieces and, and what we need to do as a sector to try to maybe help people to understand that a lot of this naysaying and, and all these, this, the sky is falling and the doom and gloom. Like you said, the conversations are important, but what do we need to do better moving into the future post COVID to, to help our sector wow, to yeah. be responsive, you know? <laughs> That's a, so, you know, we could, we could spend the next 10 hours. I know. Uh, Liz always asks the hard ones, just for the record. Right. Right. Yeah, but I, I had to do it because I have him here now. I'm going to kidnap him, and I have to hear all of his historical background on everything. We, we are, Liz, Liz. We are talking to a government representative, so I don't know about kidnapping. Oh, maybe I, I shouldn't say kidnapping. Yeah, that was not a good choice of words there. <laughs> so, um, so, so it's interesting, right? This this idea of ROI um, has has been around in the business world for forever. Uh, it is fairly recent. Um, in the higher education world. And, and to this day, a lot of faculty that you talk to, if you talk in terms of ROI or the fact that a student's a customer or that, you know, the education we, we sell is a product, they get offended, right? That, that you are somehow um, degrading the purity of the higher education enterprise. And so I, I think... I think we've got to learn to, to be more comfortable with those terms because it's the terms that society as a whole has adopted, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And when we talk about ROI, when we talk about being able to provide something, a, a service, a product for students uh, who've invested either their own money or more money they've borrowed um, from the government or, or from banks, we need to be able to talk about why why what we deliver as an institution is unique and will help students succeed in the marketplace. There's been this shift in conversation over the last 20 years uh, from higher education as a uh, the production of an informed citizenry 
to higher education as preparing students for uh, workforce and career readiness. And the reality is that you can have both and that, that a lot of institutions do this well, uh, serving both of those competing interests. Um, but we just haven't figured out how to talk about it very well yet. I don't, I don't think, I mean, some, some universities and institutions are doing really well in this. I think community colleges by and large, um, because they've been on the front end of this for a long time, have, have learned how to talk about this, but we can't be scared of, of talking about return on investment when it, when it becomes to higher education. I mean, you, you look at every study out there and it still shows the return on investment for higher education degrees, even at the undergraduate level is well beyond that of uh, just a high school degree. And it, it goes up from there. So I, I think it's, it's a fear of, of corrupting the purity of our, of our um, ivory tower in part, because there's so much tradition around what we do, but we are also in a time of massive change. And, and from the 60s to now, um, you know, we enjoyed a golden age of higher education since the, the passage of Johnson's Acts in the 60s through the early 2000s. And then 2000 hit, and, and I'm convinced historians will look at this last 20 year period in the world of American higher education and say that was one of the most transitive periods uh, that that the world of higher education has ever known because it has forced institutions to to think differently to um, think about different modalities you know you hear the you hear the old story um, that uh, back I guess it was let me get my history dates right have been the 15th century um, as books started coming onto the scene a lot of the professors of, of the, the institutions then um, looked down on books. They didn't want their students having books because there was this old Platonic and Socratic belief that, um, that your memory was your mightiest weapon and that to oh, wow. use books was to, um, to somehow dull your senses and dull your memory and remembering that information. And, and so, you know, Gutenberg comes along with the printing press, books become a mainstay, but people forget as that modality switch happened from the use of memory and, and pure lectures to the, the putting of lectures in books, there was resistance to that change. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I always kind of laugh anytime we see resistance to these modality changes because they're, it's happened before, they'll happen again. And, and it's just part of the evolution of the process. So we can look at history and know that, that you know, 100 years from now, higher education modalities will look a lot different than they do today even. But, but our, our, our service and our endpoint, I think, will still be the same. You asked about um, access, which is incredibly important. Uh, you know, it's something that a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about. My concern about access is that we have too much of the access conversation without having the success conversation. Mm. Um, you know, I was, oh, I was, wow. Say it louder for the people in the back. <laughs> yeah, no, really. <laughs> do, say, do say that again, because that, that's uh, yes. I love when people title our episodes for us. So say yes. that. <laughs> oh, that's definitely the title. Please write that down. Do not let us forget that. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I really, I really do. I, I, access is incredibly important, and and a lot of the the federal programs and institutional programs are designed to help students around access. But 
but if we don't have more conversation around success, then it yes. then it's a losing fight, right? Um, and you know, even I'll never forget when you begin to explain to board members that that emphasis on academic success retention is actually the smart business move. Yes. I'll never forget seeing light bulbs go off when folks realized that that the investment in retention, whether you're investing in more student support services or more tutors, that, that's actually going to cost you less mm -hmm. than trying to go out and find two new students for everyone you lose. And oh, man. I mean, it, this is a this is a sermon. Did, did you know you were coming to a sermon today, <laughs> Joe? Did no, you have to preach on? <laughs> preach it on. Is, it's, it's something I get passionate about because because this in is a real. Lot of, a lot of the policy conversation right now takes takes place around this. But uh, and, and again, because I, I don't ever want to be misunderstood, it's not to say that access is not important. The institution yes. I just came from was 33 percent first gen. And I mean, it, it's just incredible to serve students who are, are first gen students. Mm -hmm. But if 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 we're talking about that because because we have a lot of answers for access, it doesn't seem like we have all the answers for success. But right. we need to spend more time there. We need to focus more effort there, more resources there, um, because when you know, I've always chuckled. I'll never forget when I first learned that we measure the um, graduation rates at the federal level in six years for four-year degrees, right? You measure it 150%. Um, and, and they're still not what they should be. So, so I think a lot of the conversation that we need to have over the next decade or, or more is around this concept of success. With, with online education, with virtual education, with multi-campus universities operating, um, you know, as long as it stays within reasonable cost, which is a, another conversation, access, um, you know, has a lot going for it. But I think we've still got a ton of work to do around uh, how we're going to help these students succeed, how to how to find a balance between, you know, this is a typically an 18 year old transitioning into adulthood, how much responsibility do they need to take for their own education, or you have the the adult student, you know, single mom of two working and going to school full time, what does that look like? Because those two things are completely different scenarios. And, and so, and then the last thing I'll say around that concept, and, and I hit on it a little bit before, is I think institutions are going to begin to see that they, they don't need to be all things to all people, right? So, so these last couple of decades, we've seen this arm race and, and, um, you know, the, the lazy river pools and the climbing walls and the, <laughs> the, caf the cafeterias that serve better meals than, than most restaurants. And, and, and there will always be a market for that. Um, and, and great, you know, that's, there, there are institutions that, that should do that or can do that. But, but there are always going to need to be the need for institutions who, who concentrate on the learning engagement, on preparing students for career choices, for preparing them to be engaged citizenry. Um, I'll never forget, I had a professor at Vanderbilt who said, you only need two things uh, for education to happen. And he said, you need a teacher and a student. You can sit under a tree, but, yeah. but, but for education, for learning to happen, you, all you need are those two things. 
And so I think as institutions learn to, to embrace their mission focus more, that they don't need to try to be all things to all people, that they should target their sector of the market, whatever that is, and, and become the best they can be in that sector. Once we begin to do that and institutions realize that that's our great strength on a national level is how much diversity of mission and focus we have, that, that I think will be unstoppable in terms of, of creating organic ROI that folks mm. see. Um, but, but uh, you know, I understand students who come out with a lot of debt and they can't find a job um, because they, they, you know, didn't have the information they needed. I think we've done a, a lot of great work with the college scorecard uh, in, this, in this last four years uh, to give those kinds of uh, information points to folks. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to postulate about it and talk about it, and, and it's another thing to do it. And um, the, our greatest strength can, I think, sometimes all, all also be our greatest weakness because we are a bunch of different institutions in our industry. It can sometimes be difficult to get everybody moving together in one direction uh, focused on the same goal. And I think that's, you know, that's something we'll have to look at over the next 20 years or so. Mm. So we want to be cognizant and um, very grateful of the time that you spent with us and the insights that you gave us actually a lot in the, in the short time. I, I don't know if I should say this, but in my head when I'm like, okay, we have an interview or a conversation with somebody at the federal level of higher education, I was just like, okay, is this person going to be, like, is it going to be boring? I don't know, but you came with the fire. The fire. <laughs> if I want to say this episode was lit, it was lit because I was literally on the yeah. edge of my on the edge of my seat here so thank you so much for um it's been a lot of fun i appreciate dispelling <laughs> dispelling that myth because you <laughs> i i came it was a sermon I, if I, I definitely have my my notepad here is full of notes so thank you we so gotta much we got to be passionate about it Absolutely. And we are as well. So we, we definitely relate to everything that you've said and, and the, the passion and, and, the, and just how motivated and driven and, and clearly you, you have so much insight from historical as well as just boots on the ground. I respect that so much that you've been in the classroom, you've been at the campus level. So you're not just pontificating about something that you read in Chronicle of Higher Education. You know it because you've been there. And just like okay. me and Joe, you served and now you're serving at such a, a, a greater level and, um, and really doing, I can see just based on everything that you've said, really showing that that passion at the national level. So that's really awesome. Um, the last couple of questions that we have for you, we, we could spend another hour talking to you, but we wanna be respectful of your time, is uh, what do you see as the future of higher education? If you could be a futurist for us for a moment, you, you sure. definitely have the capacity to do that. We, we know from all of your experience. And is there's anything else that maybe we, we didn't talk about, maybe that you guys are doing at the federal level that maybe we should be aware of uh, for those of us that work in the sector or any insights that you can provide us with in terms of, of what to expect from your, um, from your vantage point at the national sure. level? Yeah. Sure. That, that's a great question. So the, the future of higher education, that's the, the kind of thing that, you know, I, I lay in bed and think about at night. And uh, when my wife and I go to the beach, um, you know, I'm sitting there with my latest higher ed book, uh, looking out at the ocean, thinking about that very thing, right? It's, 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 or your later, latest higher ed podcast. Uh, 
<laughs> <That's it. laughs> yeah they, so so I, I do listen to i listen to y'all and i listen to uh the future you guys um and a, a couple others but but y'all i mean y'all are on the cutting edge y'all are having the, the conversation so, Thank you so um Thank in you. terms of the in in terms of the the future of the industry um you know i think i think you'll have to dig a little bit to see what's really going on i think we'll continue to have kind of the surface superficial level conversations around modalities right what does online education look like versus what does on-campus education look like um, for for most faculty who were at one point uh, against online uh, they've come around and and they've probably you know one of the great ironies of online education is that it if you do it right it takes much more time to prepare for class in an online environment than it does mm -hmm. in an on-campus environment, much more time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know, institutions are going to have to think about that when it comes to determining faculty loads and and how many faculty they need to teach what sections, those kinds of things. So it, I, I think we'll continue to have conversations around um, what a degree means. I don't think you'll, uh, you know, I think the four-year undergraduate degree um has has probably run its course as the only degree I, I don't think it's going anywhere but i think it'll be joined by by other robustly developed certificates and um two-year degrees and um reverse degrees and and um badges you know all the things gamification all the things we talk about i, I think institutions who can read the tea leaves will see that on some level, um, they need to embrace those those other types of credentialing, and I think you'll see continued partnerships with industry um, to guarantee a pipeline from from higher ed to uh, some of these these um, new newly developed uh, jobs like in the tech sector, um, and I think you'll continue to to hear conversations about about how we pay for college. What's, what it's worth, what's uh, the ROI on it uh, supposed to be, and what is it currently? Um, and, and those are, I think, again, all in, important conversations. Um, but I always go back, when, when folks ask this question, I always go back to um, kind of my liberal arts upbringing. The number two, the, the, the most asked for thing from industry of a college graduate is still critical thinking skills and communication skills. True. After all these years, those, uh -huh. that answer has not changed. And so when we start talking about a curriculum, you know, we get, we get into this false dichotomy between liberal arts or professional disciplines. I, I think that's the wrong conversation to be having. I think the conversation needs to be around what does this idea of a credit hour mean? What does it mean to have competency-based learning? I think we need to look at the mechanisms and the modalities instead of using this kind of subject matter dichotomy um, to, to, to rule the roost. I, 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 don't, I think that's a false choice. I think you can have both, and I think most industries want you to have both. But we do have to think about how we're packaging it, what, what the credit hour um, means to us. You know, it's over a century old now. Uh, it is an ill-defined and uh, an ill-equipped mechanism for measuring 
education, but nobody's come up with anything better. I do think, I don't know if y'all have had anybody on that's an expert in blockchain technology, but some of the conversations going on around blockchain technology and their use in higher ed are really interesting um, and, and could create these, these kind of lifelong pathways that, that go with an individual throughout their life and they just gain credential along the way. And so I think you'll see more of that kind of segmentation of credentials. Um, but I don't think institutions themselves are going anywhere. Some of them will, right? I mean, some of them just won't be able to keep enrollment, but we've endured a lot worse than what we're enduring now. And I think those that, that either have, you know, large endowments or those that can be innovative in a way that the market's asking for will be just fine. Hey guys, this is Joe. You heard from MDT Marketing at the beginning of the episode. Please take the time to go to learn.mdtmarketing.com to download their 2020 Marketing Strategies Guide for free. Yes, I just said for free. I've known the team at MDT Marketing probably going on 15 years. Their uh, president, Mitch Tallenfeld, and I talk all the time. You know, these guys are super knowledgeable. They want to help higher education institutions succeed. No strings. Go download the guide, learn.mdtmarketing.com. We all need tips. Now that schools are operating online, this guide will give you those digital tips. Go download it. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp Experience, please visit edupexperience.com. And if you want to be in on the live recordings, please sign up for our email list. Go to edupexperience.com and sign up to be a subscriber. We'll let you know how you can listen in live and get the scoop before anyone else does. So please, as always, feel free to share this podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. We would really, really appreciate that. You've been listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liva, and Elvin Freitas.